You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Matthew Lee Orobach. Matthew is a writer and performer who I have known for years through our mutual friend Polly Hubbard, and I was thrilled when he agreed to talk to me for the podcast. I've really admired his energy and his honesty in his work for a long time. He's currently based in LA where he's gotten to dip his toes into writing for TV as well, and he has a play at Steppenwolf in his hometown of Chicago right now called The Doppelganger which finishes its run there on June 2nd, the day after this interview comes out. So if you're in Chicago and free on Friday or Saturday, run out and try to see it. I really wish I was going to get a chance to. We recorded this conversation over Skype, and there are a few sound issues here and there, so bear with me. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the 120th episode of The Compass. that I have learned to keep me from the dark side. I think that, um, you know, I've started to run, which I don't love. Uh, I hate running. But during rehearsal for uh, the last play that I was doing, a lot of the cast was doing this thing called Tread 415 in Chicago. And it was like 15 minutes on a treadmill, 15 minutes on the floor, and then you do that uh, four times. And there's like a you know person on a headset who's like you know you know move, you know we're going up to six no right. on the floor like a group and, exercise class right yeah it's yeah. a group gym class and what and I hate I like fitness but I, I I like it theoretically I don't like doing it but what I found was the process was so relentless for this play in like the best way that I needed to clear my head and so I found that as I've come back when I get to that dark-sided place, and I think I was doing this before, I just didn't realize it, it really clears my head to, like, reconnect to my body mm-hmm. and feel physically, like, to just to get out of my head. And so that was really helpful. And I, one of the things I, you know, I lived in New York for 12 years, and being in L.A., I'm surrounded by nature. So the miracle of nature and just existence is so profound to me that I can stare at a plant for a really long time and admire that it came from this little seed, this little packet of generations of information, and it's now grown into this biological machine that is surviving and thriving. So being around the miracle of life and nature is really helps me, uh, get, gets me out of my head and like reconnects me to the planet and to my body and to the universe. Um, and so that has really helped me, um, you know, remember kind of the purpose as, um, as an, as a human, as like someone experiencing the human experience, then I'm not thinking about what I'm not getting or what other people are doing and all this kind of frivolous man-made stuff. Um, and our business is so difficult that I think that it's really easy. I mean, it's it's such a slippery slope. It's one Facebook post. It's one article yeah. that sets yeah. you kind of rolling and like, uh, oh, wait a minute. What about me? Or um, what am I? Am I not working hard enough? Am I not working smart enough? And when you put that pressure on yourself, I think that it's good to 
not only keep your eyes on your own paper, but take your eyes off the paper completely and look around you. So that's been really helpful for me in kind of uh, getting out of the dark side. Yeah. How long have you been in New York now? Or, I'm sorry, well, I was, in LA, I mean? I was in New York 12 years. I've been in LA um, probably for the last year and a half, on and off. Um, and I don't like admitting that I like it more than I do. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot here that I really do like. And being from Chicago, I'm, I like the organism of the city of Chicago and New York. They're very similar. And LA is just a different beast entirely. So, yeah, I've been here for the last year and a half, and, and, I, and I'm liking it more and more. And I miss weather. <laughs> <laughs> How have you, have you found that it's affected, like, the kinds of work that you're producing as a writer? Have you found the geography to, like, be inspiring you in different ways? It's a really interesting question. Um, yes and no. I think that I, I think there was something about the atmosphere of New York that is so compressed and because I had um, two really intense day jobs when I was there both as a writer and a producer that when I would come home to work on my own stuff or when I'd work on my own stuff at work everything felt the sense of urgency was so high and the stakes were so high and also the age I was too like everything needed to be faster and like you're just you're in a pressure cooker and the opportunities are so small there that you're really fighting for your place. And I think here, I feel like the opportunities are more abundant and also like the sky is bigger, like the actual physical, I can see the sky. Mm -hmm. So there is something about that that has relaxed me and made me go, you, you, you don't have to, you can work smarter, you don't have to work faster or harder, you just need to kind of reassess your operating practices. And I don't know that the geography has affected what I'm interested in writing about because those interests are the same. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, a write, I, I'm a political writer, and I'm I'm someone who is also I'm just very socially and politically minded. So that hasn't changed at all. So, but I do think like the breath that I'm allowed to take has probably helped my work and and cleared my mind some, which is good. Um, yeah. Yeah, I do find that I think it can kind of be a myth that that pressure cooker of New York helps people produce more or helps people produce better, when in actuality we all kind of forget that there's another option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That you can be allowed to have that breath and to maybe yeah. not have your daily life or your existence be so difficult. <laughs> yeah, to give yourself permission to relax. Um, it, and it, for me, it, it makes the work, it makes my mind better. I mean, that, that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to move out here also is I wanted a change of scene. I, I mean, I, I had left a job that was really intense um, while I was working as an actor and a playwright, and I just thought, I need, to, I need to leave the country. And so I went to Europe, and I did Habitat for Humanity, and I did my own walkabout in the woods of Switzerland, like on oh a nickel and a dime. And it was great. It was exactly <laughs> what I needed. And that was right before you moved to LA? Yeah, it was right before I moved to LA. I was, and I had said like, I need to write for TV properly. And, you know, suddenly things started aligning that like just weren't happening. And I think a lot of that's time too. And, you know, would that have happened had I stayed in New York? Doesn't matter. What matters is I had changed the narrative of my life in such a profound way that suddenly things started happening in a way that I could trust and I could just kind of, you know, let go and let God, so to speak, which yeah. is really hard to do. Extremely it's hard to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's hard. But when I think when you're when you know the work that you're doing and you're committed to the mission of that work, the project of that work, that's the only thing that matters and it will come and i think for me to to learn that i don't have to think about that's not my job my job is to do the best work i can possibly do always and that it will find its place um and i didn't have to do i i, I could i could give myself permission i could relinquish myself from that kind of control my agency was simply about the work that i was doing and, you know, I have to, like, bring myself back to that sometimes. It's not always easy, but, um, 
yeah, that that it's it's liberating in a way because that's what we do. What we do is work. But as a writer, it's different. As an actor, it's a whole different thing because you are at the whim of a system that is making nuanced judgments about your height and you know how we fit in a as ingredients in a kind of chemistry. And that is one of the reasons I also started writing too, because I I had been so close to so many big things and then not close to anything. And then I thought like, I don't, I don't know where I fit here and I don't like waiting and I have so much to say. I have control over what I can say and how I say it. And so that, that also was really helpful for me. Well, that, I feel like right around when I first met you, it was when you were doing the handbook for an American revolutionary. Was that the right title? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so I feel like I've always known you as someone who writes, but you started out just as a performer, right? Well, kind of. I um, When I moved out here, I was auditioning for a lot of, a lot of musical theater, actually. And I was, I, I, I had, at the time, been writing this sociopolitical satire called Happy Sunshine Kung Fu Flower. And this was like in 2006. And... It was the first thing I'd ever written. Um, we were at, uh, we started in this like back of a nightclub in the meatpacking district, and then went to Ars Nova, and then at the Zipper, which was this amazing venue, and uh, the Onion sponsored us because I called cold called them and was like, "Hey, I have this thing," and they're <laughs> like, "Great!" And uh, Rachel Maddow and Mo Rocca and Amy Goodman were featured guests on the show in this interview segment, so it really became this event. And I learned how to produce them, too. And so while that was happening, you know, all the acting stuff was and wasn't happening. And I thought, you know, this is actually more satisfying for me. And I keep thinking about this. And I'm waking up thinking about how we're doing, how this is going to happen. I need to pay attention to that. And I would gotten fired from a server job because I'd been writing on the receipt paper roll. (laughs) And, And they were like, you know, we love you. You're really fun. But you know, you're wasting the receipt paper roll and you obviously are more interested in doing that than your job. <laughs> so, Not to mention your so. time. <laughs> Not to mention, like, the time yeah. at the job, but the receipt paper roll is really what's concerning us. <laughs> yeah. Don't waste our, don't waste our paper. Um, that sounds like so a it, hell of a first writing and producing project, though. It was, yeah. Um, and, and, and it, you know, we had an amazing team and, um, you know, my roommate, um, he, he was, he was the lead producer on it and it was, it was kind of that all in New York, like we're doing this together and let's see what we got kind of thing. Um, and it was very, uh, it was a transformative experience because it gave me agency as, as an artist, but the point where you probably met me was when I started playwriting, which is a whole different thing. And that took me a while to figure out. Okay. Um, so, and that's also like just a different ecosystem than, you know, putting up a sociopolitical sketch show, right. um, being a playwright is, is a whole, is a whole other, you know, ball of wax and, and I needed to learn how to write narrative and what that was. How did you end up kind of honing that part of the craft? Did you take classes? Did you kind of just learn by doing and feedback observation? Yeah, all of that. I started watching plays differently. I started reading a ton um, I took a couple playwriting classes um, that a lot of playwrights uh, who are in those classes are, you know, doing very well now. And they were, it was Tanya Barfield was teaching the class. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember the first thing she said was, she said, any of you who think you're going to make money as a playwright, you're not. She said, there's only one and it's Teresa Rebeck. So <laughs> you should plan on writing for TV. And I was like, well, I'm going to make money as a playwright. You watch me. Well... it doesn't quite work that way so yeah and then you know being in feedback groups and you know doing all the things that an emerging playwright does do 10 minute play thing being in writers groups ours know the play group was a huge part of my uh uh existence which is really great and do you do you find yourself now uh like do you have your identity as an artist encompassing all these different parts of yourself or are you like you know what i'm a writer that's what I do. Uh, I think that each kind of skill expresses a different thing. Like, I think that I see the world as a writer, but I feel the world as an actor. 
character. Mm. So though, like with Handbook, that solo play was a perfect expression of those two things. And I was able to go around the country and meet people and learn about, you know, migrant being what it was to be a migrant picker, white nationalism, learn more about transgenderism in uh, the transgender community in Wyoming, everything. And to be a prism for that was uh, really, there was so much responsibility in that, both as a writer and an actor, because I'm playing different ethnicities also, and I'm a white person. I'm a white guy, so that there's a lot of care that has to be had there. So there's a lot of different like, yeah, I think it, it, it all depends. And also like back in the day, I was going to be an illustrator. That's what I thought I was going to do. So like that's also a part of something that I do too. So it's kind of like what what works for each thing. Yeah, you need all of those outlets. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it all depends on the thing, I guess. Yeah. So you just spent time in Chicago doing a show, uh, which, as we, I think, already mentioned, was your hometown. Yeah. Um, what, how does your family take in your choice to be an artist for your career? Um, well, my mom is a writer. Oh. She's an author. And fiction my or nonfiction? Both. Uh, she started off writing young adult romance novels, and her <laughs> first book won Romance Writer of the Year Award, so that was like her catapult, yeah, and then uh, she started writing children's books. Uh, you know, you know, everyone wants a children's book about Kent State and welfare, and that's what she was writing about, <laughs> and she was at, actually at Kent State during the shooting, so it was from experience, but wow. she... So I was surrounded by writers growing up, going to different writing groups and just having those conversations, going to factories and learning about how things were made. And my aunt was an artist. My aunt is an artist. And uh, my my best friend growing up, his father was a Pulitzer Prize winning writer for the Chicago Tribune. And um, his son is consequently a writer for the Tribune also. So I was kind of surrounded by it. And I never really wanted to be a writer. Um, and I think my parents were actually more accepting of me being an actor because they saw what that looked like throughout college and high school and, and music. I, I was a singer also. So they really like, that's what they had committed to. So when I started writing, they were really concerned that I, it wasn't my major because hmm. you know what majoring is what you have to do. But I think now, you know, they're like, okay, yeah, we get it. You're doing, you're doing okay. Like, <laughs> yeah were they so excited to go see your play at Steppenwolf oh my god I think it's like six or seven times like as uh, a Chicagoan that must be so thrilling uh it was I mean the whole experience was absolutely incredible um Steppenwolf is an amazing institution and from soup to nuts I mean they just it's it's a geopolitical farce it's such a huge play yeah. so to go back to Chicago one with a play is really um, exciting, but then to go back with something so huge is like, you know, hey, here, you know, <laughs> in 20 years, and here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about resource politics, and we're going to get down and dirty with this, and really silly. So, yeah, I saw a lot of old teachers, and a lot of old friends, and family, and uh, people would come up to me afterwards and say, I work with your mom, or, you know, my parents are so proud of you, so... It was, it was really nice being home, and particularly because Steppenwolf, you know, was the catalyst for me being an artist. That's where I, that was the church that I learned the mm -hmm. kind of religion. And to be back there at this North Star was a real, um, real incredible experience in, in that sense, too. It felt like, you know, Broadway's cool, whatever, but like Steppenwolf. Yeah. That's where it happened. And because yeah. that's where it happened for me, and um, yeah, and then I get to go back next season with a play about white supremacy. It's gonna be a real knee <laughs> slapper. Can I say that's something that I just admire about you so much? Is it seems like a, for most of your projects, you just tackle these ideas that are so huge, or not even that the I mean the ideas are huge, but that you don't put a limit on your like your scale of your imagination. At least from what I've heard about. Doppelganger, the show you had at <laughs> Stephen Hall. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think that's so incredible. You know, it's not like 
oh, well, if I write it for with four actors, it's going to get produced more and it'll be easier to do, you know? You really bite things off. Yeah, no, yeah, well, I appreciate <laughs> that. I mean, well, to me, it's, you know, I have an audience for 90 minutes to two hours, and what are we going to talk about? Yeah. And what are we, you know, it, to me, it's, it's also like campfire in the sense of, hey, here's what I learned out in the woods. I want to share it with you guys. Here's a story. And it's town hall in the sense that we, you know, the audience has a role. They have to lean forward and engage in this dialogue. And then it's church because this is about the, the existential thing about why we go to the theater to see ourselves and to learn or, or not even to learn because it's so arrogant of me to think that I could teach anything, but just to like make the invisible visible for a moment. And particularly with the case of Doppelganger, we're talking about the exploitation of people and we're talking about building another century on the backs of brown skin and that we carry torture in our pockets with these conflict minerals, um, with the lithium in our phones or, or wearing blood diamonds or whatever that is, to, to render that in a way that we can process that live and then walk away thinking about that. How that transformative experience is so important to me. I don't want to spend the audience's time for, and, and by the way, this isn't to diminish anything that isn't political or social, but for me, right. I believe right. that my role is as a public servant, as a writer, to to engage that dialogue and to give a platform to these, these people and these ideas that we normally don't see. Um, that, to me, is the most, um, is taking my responsibility as a citizen to its, to its, you know, for this conclusion, and it's it's it, again, it's it's translating the world for the audience. Yeah, can you talk about any challenges that you found in placing like those topics and those issues in the style of a farce? Oh man, yeah, <laughs> um, totally. Well, it's it's a tricky dance because you know this is it's a geopolitical farce and it is you're taking the eccentric actors, the eccentric international actors, um, and exploiting their absurdity in a situation that is deadly serious. So the dance between the two things is really tricky. And you want to make sure, or I had to make sure, and we had to make sure that the play doesn't stop for politics and that the silliness doesn't overrun the, the dire stakes and the desperate situations that our characters are in. It's a play about workers' rights, essentially. And finding the blend of those things was, was, yeah, it was tricky. And then also you're playing on a stereotype because it's a farce. So how, are you, how, how can we make sure we're never, ever punching down, we're always punching up at the power structures? Mm -hmm. And so making sure that we're using stereotype in service of punching up and that we are, you know, for me, I'm, I'm taking these inherited rhetorical devices that have been reflected back to us for decades and lighting them on fire and throwing them back on stage. And that's what I think great satire does. So, yeah, it, it was, it was, we were all in it together. And that was the great thing about this process is I think that, well, I know that we all knew we were trying to do this, like, extraordinary thing. And we were all on our tippy toes reaching going we know we can do this can we do this <laughs> closer let's see if we can do it <laughs> let's see if we can do this and tina is such a visionary rain is a genius and so generous of, of spirit and uh and talent and our cast and the, again the whole institution was so on board you know we found things in the first week of rehearsal that were very expensive that we didn't know we were going to get because again like you know, we had like three and a half, four-ish weeks to rehearse basically a musical. <laughs> and we were shot out of this like a cannon. And there were rewrites every day. There were new discoveries and clarifying beats, jokes that weren't landing, bits. The house is another character. You have falling paintings. You have, you know, shit hitting a fan. You have a lot of rigging and engineering. So, like, it was it was busy. It was it was building. You know, there's a line in the play, and I think that's what this play is. is it's a nightmare fuck circus. <laughs> <laughs> so it was all hands on deck. That and, is my um, kind of theater. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> it was a good time. 
How did you find, were the audiences like always completely different or did they like vocally buy into the ride with you or was it sometimes a challenge? No, the audience, I mean, there's always, you know, matinees or, you know, matinees. Yeah. Um, yeah. But even then, you think, you can tell there's different kinds of laughter. And, I, and this is what I actually think is this, I learned this about writing comedy, particularly, you know, with such a mix of highbrow and lowbrow. Some people are going to get certain things. Everyone's going to get other things. And you hope that everyone gets everything. And you are provoking laughter from an audience. And that's its own kind of symphony. And if you were to just listen to the laughs, and there's a couple, you know, there's other sounds too that come from the audience. There's a, there's, you know, this arms deal that happens. And there's this discussion of like, uh, he's like, you know, I, I'm, we, we want arms. And, uh, you know, like, we-, we want weapons of war. You know, like the kind your your people use in schoolhouses and office buildings. And there's, like, this this sound from the audience every night. And it's a mix of, oh, that's so true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh I can't believe they said that. And how dare you. But it's, it's this knowing thing because it's so present. And then when you have, you know, two school shootings during that time, that sound becomes like that's part of the church. That's part of the, the 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 musical score of the audience. That's so exciting to listen to, and the gasps that happen. So, I was so excited to like just listen to them and go like this is its own kind of music here. This is its own score, and and the instruments on stage and in the audience together create this incredible experience because you're connected in such an exciting way. And I think comedy is. I, I just, I love comedy, particularly comedy like this, that's like really making everyone, um, you know, putting them on the edge of their seat, making them lean forward in this way. It's like, this is you, this is us. We are all complicit in this comedy. This is what you've been laughing at. And this is who we are. Now, what are we going to do about it? Um, I don't remember your question. I went off on a <laughs> No, I loved it. <laughs> no, I, I was curious about how the audience like bought into it or they went with the comedy or if they were a little scared of it or yeah yeah all of it all and of it. you know every night they're you know yeah the, yes the audiences are very they're very responsive yeah oh my god i wish i could see it yeah i know me too <laughs> with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, now, your partner is also an artist. Devin yeah. is an actor. Yeah. How have you guys kind of found the balance of being in a relationship with, yeah, with another artist, supporting each other, working out all the, the weirdness of uh, two people dealing with this lifestyle? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not easy. I think that, I think the challenges have made us grow independently and together. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I didn't go to grad school. Devin went to grad school. And mm-hmm. I think that having that, you know, you come out of that with a certain expectation, um, especially having gone to NYU. There's an expectation of, you know, I, I, I have a master's, therefore I am, you know, I have an edge. And I, I should be seen differently by the industry because of that. And I think for, you know, some people, they get out of grad school and they pop and they shoot, they shoot right out. And some people, it takes more time. And Devin coming out to LA has been really good because he's finally seen and he has this great coaching business. And so to be able to take that expertise and really flourish himself, um, you know, you find grounding and again, it's taking agency. And when you are finally seen for your talent and for your ability, you have a different sense of your place in an industry. When you don't have that is actually when the most growth happens, when you don't, before that happens, to go, well, what's my work? What's my value? And so for us, it's been really great because we're such a support for each other and we both believe in each other so much that 
I don't, I think you, there's a certain level of, like, I admire people who are like, there's an artist and there's a lawyer in the relationship. That must be so great. I know. But, you know, for a lot of reasons. What is that? <laughs> but for us to understand the ups and downs in the roller coaster and support each other to understand what that means is really, um, has been really helpful. Also, you know, knowing the same people, just like that is also a thing that's really helpful too. And, you know, yeah, I always say that with Frankie and I, you know, like whoever, we're a team and like whenever, whoever Frankie's meeting, I'm meeting. Yeah. He's talking to them about me, not like in a salesman way, but it's just like we move through the world together. And so like if something good happens for one of us, something good is happening for both of us. Um, I think that's so true. That's so true for both of us. We are, we are teammates. And um, when, yeah, when one good thing happens for one, that's well, I'm so glad that LA is turning out to be a good fit for both of you. That's great. Uh, yeah, get me back to New York soon, though, because I miss it. <laughs> yeah. Like, feverishly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, maybe now some of these shows will bring you back. Now that you're uh, ha- having these regional productions, you know? I, I hope so. There, it's funny because for the whole time... I was in New York. I didn't think of living anywhere else. And now that I have distance from New York, I go, do I miss New York because I was in my 20s? Or do I miss like <laughs> the city of New York and what it was? Because I've gone back a couple of times and it's just not the same city anymore. Right. And I was I, I was there over Christmas um, seeing SpongeBob, which is brilliant, by the way, if you haven't seen it. <laughs> I haven't. It's so oh my God. And I was like, you know, I was only there for three days, but I was like, this city's crazy. Like, I always, I worked in Times Square before, and I knew how crazy it was, but, like, this is crazy. I, I don't, <laughs> it's so expensive. Everyone is, like, just so many people on top of each other, but I'm going back in a couple weeks, and I feel like it's going to be much, uh, much calmer then, so I look forward to that. Okay. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit? I know you've done uh, some work, some significant work in TV now from when you were doing Masters of Sex and Nickelodeon and stuff like that. How has that ex- working in that medium been for you? Has it been a good learning experience or do you, do you enjoy that kind of like writer's room process? Yeah, I love it. I love being a part of an ensemble and yeah. uh, collaborating for sure. I mean, that's, that's my ethos. Um, working in Nickelodeon, so I, I worked at WWE and then Nickelodeon, and they're different because that's corporate creative, and you're right. working in verticals, and you're answering to different priorities, and that's just a whole different thing. But working on Masters of Sex, and, you know, when you're in that room, it's it's great because you're bouncing ideas off of people, and you're working on narratives, you're getting inside the minds of characters, um, and you're figuring out the kind of project of the series together. I mean, you know, it's led by the showrunner and, and, and their priorities, but everyone's bringing something to the table. And I love working like that because you want to put all the best ideas forward and the best ideas win. Um, and yeah, I, I love it. I love, I, lo- I love working in a team. Yeah. And then does it end up that, um, you know, you do all this brainstorming and storyboarding together and then your responsibility as a writer is like working on one specific episode or is it really more piecemeal like everyone's editing and working on each each uh episode i think it's different for every room Mm -hmm. um i've only been in two rooms um masters and then um the second season of gypsy um which didn't air unfortunately because it was the work we'd done was really exceptional In, in the masters room there everyone got a script. I had my own script. And so, but I think depending on what it is, like you follow characters. So you're mm-hmm. only doing like character, those scenes from the character, but then I, I really think it depends. Um, again, my experience is limited as of this point. And you know, <laughs> now I'm just writing a lot of pilots that are in various stages of development and I'm waiting like, okay, well, I want to run my own show now so I can figure that out on my own. <laughs> Is that just kind of a process of like seeing what sticks, like throwing things against a wall and like um, and writing a lot of pilots, I mean? Yeah, I mean, um, I try not to write too many because, you know, you write the pilot and then you write the Bible too, um, oh, okay. depending on the situation. 
and I want to stay, I, I want to stay focused on that. I'm also, I'm, I'm writing a feature right now, which is a whole different thing. And so it's like, you know, it's one of those things where everyone loves the pilot and no one's buying it. So what do you do next? Do you right. write the next pilot or do you write the Bible for this because people love it and they want to know more, but then some people buy pilots straight out. Some people buy them just straight on a pitch. So I'm like, I'm figuring that out right now and learning that myself. Um, yeah. And, what sorts of resources are you using to learn about that business side of getting someone to pick up your idea? Um, well, my, my reps definitely help educate me mm-hmm. and, um, my, you know, my writer friends out here, the majority of them are New York playwrights. Yeah. Um, it's a really great community out here and a lot of transparency about how it works, which is really helpful. Um, the writer's guild has a lot of resources. Um, they're, they're an amazing union and, uh, I learned a lot through Humanitas, which is this organization out in LA that um, gives awards for socially uh, responsible work in TV and in film, and they give award uh, a prize to emerging writers for new voices. So I got one of those a couple years ago, mm-hmm. which was amazing. It was the perfect entree into LA because of what the organization stands for. And so through that, I learned a lot about how these things work too. But it's mostly through, yeah, I would say it's mostly through writer friends because they've been through it. and. You know, they, they're kind of teaching you how these things go. And also there are no rules still. I mean, it's a very, it almost seems like vapors. I guess you have to find the balance of like, how do I put the things I'm excited about in this mold so that they are, have a vehicle to move forward. And then also, yeah, fuck the rules. Come get excited about what I'm excited about. Yeah. I mean, in terms of content, I'm never really writing toward like what a trend is because I want to be the trendsetter. Yeah. The, no, I, I don't want to be in the, the ripple of that. And so, and also like really great writing is great writing. So even if it's not what, and, 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 and by the way, I think that, you know, what great means is constantly changing as you get, as you learn more and grow and is this sample is about this thing, but the characters hopefully are good enough that it can fit in any kind of, you know, staffing situation, whether it's a family drama or whatever that is. So, you know, you, you hope that that is seen and that that's good enough. Um, but like, you know, I had someone tell me once, cause that it, when this one walking dead was first starting and I loved the walking dead because, you know, y- yes, it was about zombies and it was this sci-fi thing, but also it was, about survival and it was about mm-hmm. how we form community and the politics around that and building society and how you build society in, in groups and tribalism and all that and this person said well if you want to write for that show you need to write a zombie uh, spec pilot I'm like no that, that's not what this show's about and also like that's good for one show why would I ever do that that's such a waste <laughs> of time to break story and build character and build a whole arc for another zombie show like and that and so also when when I first got here, hearing that advice was really helpful too because it made me kind of double down on what I knew to be true and and, and then test that in, in the market and in conversations to see if I was right. Right. Um, like my so gut says that that's not true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. It's not, it's, and it's not, I mean, now, now it is a show about zombies, but when it first started, it was not. <laughs> Are there any lessons you've learned in the last couple of years that you're really proud of? that you want to tell me about? They can be small things or big things. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that I've learned, and I mean, I think I always knew to be true, but that I knew to be true in a more explicit way because of situations that I was in was how important kindness is and how important it is to always be kind um, because there, are, it's very easy like people, I think mistake kindness for weakness, but kindness requires a lot of strength and a lot of generosity and a lot mm-hmm. of light. And um, I think that even in the face of adversity and cynicism and like cruelty, to remain kind and patient and generous is the most important thing that we can do. Not only in this business, but in this like lifetime. Um, yeah, for sure. 
that I absolutely yeah um, along those lines uh, I know you mentioned that you were really involved with Habitat for Humanity are there any other um, organizations that you're involved with along the political side of your interests or resources that you really love as far to stay involved and informed as a citizen that you want to share with our listeners? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I, I started a writing program down here in Inglewood for uh, single mothers transitioning out of homelessness in prison. And it's when did you start that? I started that a year ago. Okay. Um, I actually called um, Midnight Mission on January 20th, on the day of the inauguration, okay. and thought, like, I can do only so much as a writer. This takes time, and there's so many wheels in the bureaucracy that I need to do something more direct. And I had been doing Habitat before then and volunteering at random. You know, I, I did a lot of work with the homeless when I was a kid. And so I called them and said, hey, I'm a writer. This is what I'm thinking. Um, I'd love to meet with you guys. I looked at different organizations, and they had this satellite program called Home Light, which houses women, um, well, anyone, but it's mostly women, who, are, who have gone through midnight mission programs, addiction counseling, life programs, and they live in this apartment complex, and they pay rent, but rent is put away in an account, so you're really living rent-free, and then you get all that money back at the end of the year, or maybe a year and a half, and then you can get your own place. And they're helping you with job placement, they're helping you with all, all, all different kinds of aspects of you know, getting you back into society. Um, you know, it's really hard because these women are, they've gone through so much trauma, and they're trying to put themselves through school, and they're working more than one job, and they have kids. And our system in this country is not built for, for those people. It's just not. And I think that when we think about what, you know, the society is an expression of our values. And when it became really apparent to me that we don't value, and I knew this, to be true and then I saw it to be true even more and it made me really like I felt the burden of it in such an incredible way that this is also an expression of our values what we care about and, and who we don't care about and um, anyways they're an amazing organization and uh, so Midnight Mission and Home Light and um, Habitat for Humanity is also an amazing organization building homes for um, for people in the United States and all over the, all over the world and then to be civically engaged, um, I feel like I should know all these civic organizations at the top of my head, but I can't think of any. Represent.us works on ballot initiatives at the local level. Okay. Uh, I recommend getting involved with them for sure. And I, I recommend, you know, particularly as artists, we have such unique skill sets. And also, even if it doesn't have to do with the arts, even if it has to do with like literacy and how to do a resume and mock interviews, that stuff is so helpful. That's rehearsal. That's rehearsal for getting jobs. So to call organizations in our community and be of service in that way, or to start your own like once a week reading or writing program or, or whatever. I mean, we are we are the human experience industry. Like this is exactly what we should be doing. We should be taking scripts and we should be engaging the community. And that could even be done once a week. So calling churches, calling homeless shelters or nonprofits. Everyone needs, everyone needs volunteers. Um, volunteering is a slippery slope because it can quickly become unpaid work. But I think if you know the, the line there for yourself, it's, it's contributing to a greater good and it's strengthening the community. When we do that, it strengthens the bonds of our community and it prevents social and political disasters like we're seeing right now. These things never happen when we are fighting for economic justice at the local level, when we're showing up, when we are taking each other into account um, and learning about people who are not like us. So I think, it's, I think it's looking around and saying, who needs me? How can I be of service? How can I be of help? Um, what can I do? Yeah. What kind of things do you work with with your writing group that you started, just out of curiosity? Sure. Um, I... So I saw the, the need, one, on a practical level for, you know, resume stuff and, and that mm -hmm. kind of thing and, and, and jobs, the job search, but also 
to cast yourself as the protagonist of your own story is so empowering. Yeah. So how do you use writing as a tool for self-empowerment? So like one of the things we did was, um, you know, picture yourself from a year from now where you want to be. No limits. Just give yourself permission. Like, what is your dream? Where do you want to ultimately be just a year from now? And we went through the whole day waking up in that house, whatever that was, going through the whole day, and then writing a letter to your today self from your year from now self, telling them how you got there and challenges you may have faced along the way. So suddenly you have, you know, I think life is about visualization. It's visualizing that that place you want to be, how we can get there, and seeing ourselves as having enough more being of value enough to ourselves. And and you know, there's things that come up along the way. Life presents you with challenges. You have again kids, uh, your, your your own personal struggles, whatever. But just as like a foundation, and suddenly you can use writing as a tool for self-empowerment and getting people to talk about things they may not feel comfortable talking about because they were told that they were never good enough or that they couldn't dream that big. And dreaming is 99% of what we do as artists. And that's that was a big part of that too. And also there are other writing exercises you yeah. know, between that. You know. No, but when you're worrying about those basic survival needs, yeah. it's hard to even let your mind see that anything else could be beyond that. It's that's, that's really powerful. That's great. Yeah. Shifting gears, do you have any mentors who have been important to your artistic life? Yeah, um, I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of them is also a very good friend of mine, um, and someone you know. Um, her name is Polly, yeah. and she's been pretty um she's been a pretty great friend and and guide um ellen ferry who's a playwright and tv writer we met on uh, masters of sex she's been uh you know when i talk about like how the whole thing works she's been really she's been a huge advocate and just really instrumental and like you know these are these are these are things to know i mean she's you know she's she's a she's kind of a I don't want to call her just a mentor. She's not. She's she's a really good friend, but right. her she really took me under her wing and, and during the master's room. And and yeah, I have and and a, and a few other people too. Um, I mean, people who don't necessarily know that they're mentors, but I I, I learn from quite often. I, I there's I just don't know anything. So the more <laughs> I can the more I can glean, the better. When you are feeling like you're uninspired and you're in that dark place and you're just not motivated. Are there any um, concrete things that you turn to again and again, like things that you reread or music or things like that? I listen to a lot of music. I listen to a lot of um, like Rage Against the Machine and Black <laughs> Sabbath and uh, Led Zeppelin, uh, White Stripes, just to like get me in that zone. And it's music I listen to when I run also. Particularly Rage, their music is so, their lyrics are so great, their music is so good, and also evokes a particular time in my life when I was, like, really, like, social activist-y, like, it just reminds me of all that. Um, so music, for sure. Mm -hmm. Meditating, if I can focus. Uh, yeah, they, they, they kind of bring me back, for sure. I can't read too much because I... Everything I read either makes me really depressed and brings me farther into the dark side, or it inspires me, and then I'm like, I gotta learn more about that, and then suddenly I'm sidetracked. <laughs> so, so I have to be really careful because I think everything is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's a wonderful quality in an artist, curiosity. Yeah, that's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> um, and then finally, is there anything that you've seen recently that you want to recommend of any any art form? Um, oh man, well, definitely The Doppelganger. Um, <laughs> and not because I wrote it, but because the cast is just incredible and Tina's direction is amazing. And how how long is it running? It's we're running until June 2nd. Nice. Um, and uh, so I highly recommend that. Birdland at uh, Steep in Chicago, directed by Jonathan Berry, is also very good. I don't know if that's still it's still running. 
here's a piece of art that I recommend everyone watch. It's very divisive. Some people love it, some people hate it. But Wild Wild Country on Netflix. I still haven't watched it, but yeah, everybody was talking about it. It is, it is, it is, it is amazing on so many levels, social, political, spiritual, just like the, the human transaction. It's really, I, I, I fucking love it. It's okay. so good. Yeah, well, I will well, take sure. your your recommendation. Yeah, it's <laughs> for swearing. I apologize. No, it's fine. Matthew, thank you so much. This was so wonderful to catch up. Yeah, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of The Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thecompasspodcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brandon Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hi y'all, this is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.